0: Stores produce many stories of fiction, some of which are told until they're believed to be true. Ulysses S. Grant Welcome to the Revisions History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today we're going to be tackling five myths about the bloodiest conflict in American history, the Civil War. Now there's no complete count of the number of books written about the American Civil War, though a rough estimate puts the total at close to 100,000. The number of articles online surely numbers in the millions. This isn't really surprising, given that more Americans died in the four-year conflict, 620,000, than nearly all other American wars combined, and the fact that scars from the war continue to plague the nation more than 150 years later. It's also no surprise, though it is regrettable, that more myths about the Civil War persist to this day than any other conflict the United States is engaged in. It was, after all, a battle between two diametrically opposed sides, with the South seeing it as a war for independence, and the North viewing it as outright rebellion. Even the titles of early history books about the war reflected this division, as did the versions of the history of the war they told. That's not history, however, but rather propaganda. And it's dangerous propaganda, much of it forming the lost cause narrative that's been believed and taught in the South for far too long. It's long past time to debunk the propaganda and accept only the real history of the war. In that spirit, here are five persistent myths about the Civil War that must be set straight. Number one, the issue of states' rights, not slavery, was the cause of the war. This is a myth that many people believe today, one that some school textbooks teach as a reason for the war, and one that white supremacist groups expound regularly. It's also not a very new one. From the moment states of the newly formed Confederacy began to secede from the Union, Southerners claimed it was not over the issue of slavery, but rather to defend the rights of the states against a tyrannical federal government. Now that makes a fine rallying cry, but it's a rallying cry that completely ignores a simple fact. Nearly every state's secession declaration, as well as the constitution of the Confederacy itself, spoke of the preservation of slavery, often in the very first paragraphs. In the Mississippi Declaration of Secession, for example, 401 of its 710 words directly reference slavery, beginning with this line: quote, "Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world." End quote. And while they did mention states' rights in these documents, they were almost always talking about a state's rights, state's right to allow its people, its white people own slaves. Number 2. Robert E. Lee was far superior to Ulysses S. Grant as a military strategist but was simply overwhelmed by the Union's advantage in men and equipment. The common narrative, even in textbooks, has always been that Lee was a brilliant strategist and tactician who did more than anyone could have imagined or expected with far fewer men and resources. But did he really? It is a fact that Lee won several impressive victories early in the war, most notably at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. But these victories aside, Lee's near obsessive desire to destroy the Army of the Potomac caused him to repeatedly take unacceptable losses in situations where victory was clearly not attainable, Antietam and Gettysburg being the most egregious examples. Far too often, he he refused to listen to his commanders or delegate responsibility to them, preferring to issue all commands himself. The only real exception was General Stonewall Jackson, whom Lee did clearly trust. Jackson proved instrumental in Lee's victories, but was sorely missed after his death in 1863. Another advantage Lee enjoyed early in the war was the complete ineptitude of the northern generals prior to Grant taking command of the Army of the Potomac in May of 1864. Earlier commanders, like General George McClellan, never pressed their tactical or numerical advantage when they had it. This allowed Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia to escape what should have been complete annihilation on numerous occasions. Once Grant took command, that weakness on the Union side ended, and the Confederacy was doomed as a result. It would have been far wiser for Lee to have fought a defensive war than the all-out offensive he favored. Historian James McPherson, author of the excellent book, Battle Cry of Freedom, which I've mentioned here before, said it best, quote, the South could win the war by not losing, but the North could only win by winning." Number three, Robert E. Lee was committed to reconciling the North and the South after the war. Now, it's true that Lee ordered his men not to engage in a guerrilla war, both just before and immediately after a surrendered Appomattox. He also encouraged his men to apply for pardons rather than leaving for South America and Mexico, as some did. To say he was committed to reconciliation, however, goes far beyond the actual facts. To his dying day, he said the North had to earn the trust of Southerners after the war, rather than the much more logical other way around, causing Grant to comment simply, Lee is behaving badly. Lee also caused continued division regarding former slaves after the war. Despite some comments that it was good that slavery had ended, he maintained that it would be better for Virginia if the half million newly freed blacks living there simply left. His exact words to the Joint Congressional Committee on Reconstruction in 1866 were, quote, I think it would be better for Virginia if she could get rid of them, end quote. Hardly a voice of reconciliation. Myth number four. Thousands of black soldiers fought to defend the Confederacy. Now, this is one myth that hasn't existed since the time of the war itself. In fact, it only gained traction in the 1960s and 1970s. This was the very time both historians and much of the public were finally acknowledging that slavery was the true cause of the war, and I don't think it's a coincidence that a myth like this would spring up at the same time. It allowed defiant proponents of the lost cause narrative, those who felt guilt about the actions of their ancestors, and those in denial in general to throw up an argument that was, to put it lightly, quite ridiculous, which was the claim that black soldiers fought to preserve the Confederacy too and thus the war couldn't have been about slavery. Except black soldiers didn't fight for the Confederacy. The Confederate government forbade the enlistment of blacks, whether free or slave, for service in the Confederate army for the majority of the war. Blacks were drafted for service as cooks and laborers, but that simply shifted their bondage from the plantation to army camps. Shortly before the end of the war, with defeat already certain, the Confederate Congress finally voted to allow slaves to become soldiers. It was far too late by then. As noted on the site Encyclopedia of Virginia, only a few black men were ever accepted into the Confederate service as soldiers, and none did any significant fighting. Number five. Most Confederate monuments were erected shortly after the war to honor the soldiers who died. Now, this has become a hot button issue in recent years again, but these so called memorials to the heroic dead might have made at least some sense had they actually been erected immediately following the war's end in 1865. Defiance in the face of defeat, whether wrong or right, is not uncommon. However, and this is something far too of their defenders seem to know, the bulk of the monuments were erected in two specific time periods, the years between 1900 and 1930, and again between 1954 and 1965. The first period saw the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan in the South, and the second was the period of the Civil Rights Movement that brought an end to segregation. Looking honestly at the timing of this surge in memorials to the men who led the fight to preserve slavery in America, it's hard to claim it was about honoring their sacrifice. If that were true, they would have been built in the late 1860s and 1870s. The actual timing points to something far more shameful. These statues were not odes to the past but rather symbols, justifications, and encouragements of a future that still saw Whites as superior. They were meant, whether we want to admit it or not, to show Blacks their, quote, place in Southern life, history, and culture, not just in the past, but in the future as well. They were not memorials. They were warnings in stone. Now, let me be clear about something at this point. I'm not advocating the removal of the history of the Civil War, the history of the Confederacy, or the history of slavery. We have to know our history, or we'll never learn from it. But history is taught through books, museums, and classrooms. Statues, by contrast, are erected to glorify their subjects, not to teach history. We wouldn't put up statues of Aaron Burr or Benedict Arnold on a courthouse lawn. Jefferson Davis doesn't belong there either. These aren't the only myths about the Civil War, but they are the ones used most often with nefarious intent. Removing them from our national discussion is imperative if we're to ever fully heal the wounds of that cataclysmic conflict, and that starts with getting the facts right. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.